0: Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking in urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the Think Tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this episode of City Talks. So today, my guest is Alex Niven. Alex is the author of an excellent book published early this year, so early 2023, called the North will rise again in search of the future in Northern Heartlands, and it's the focus of today's uh, discussion. Welcome, Alex. Hello, Andrew. So, so, we'll get into some of the themes of the of the book in a second. Um, but say a little bit about you know about you, your background, you know your connections to to the Northeast, because the book is about many things but it's also part, it's a part sort of memoir. It's, a, it's part of a reflection about you and your experiences of growing up, but also, you know, being part of that that world. So say a little bit about you and how that influences, you know, the book itself.
1: Sure. Um, well, I grew up in the Northeast. Uh, I grew up in the Tyne Valley, quite a kind of distinctive part of the North, as I make clear in the book. Um, it's a particular landscape, uh, often described as a kind of minor farmer landscape, you get the kind of rural landscape that you get throughout England uh, and throughout the North, but as in much of the North, you also have the kind of ruins of industry. uh, So kind of abandoned mines. The the very first house I lived on was a sort of terrace in the middle of nowhere, uh, kind of on the edge of the North Pennines near Hadrian's Wall, which had once been the kind of single um, sort of habitation block for a mine um, in, in, in that part of the world. Um, so I, I grew up in in the Northeast. Um and uh when I got a bit older, sort of went down south, traveled about a bit, went to various places, and then sort of returned to the region um to work at Newcastle University in the mid-2010s. So that's part of the narrative of 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 the of the book, as you say. There's a kind of narrative of exile and return. Um and the book, I guess, it, you know, among other things is a sort of rumination on the recent history of, of the North and perhaps the Northeast in particular. Um, and my perspective is, is obviously quite a specific one in that I sort of grew up among the, um, I guess the kind of ruins of industry in the late 20th century and the, uh, you know, in the midst of the kind of moment of deindustrialization, um, you know, kind of experienced attempts at regeneration, various attempts at regeneration. You know, went away for a bit. Came back um, in the middle of austerity, which, as I make clear in the book, you know, I think was one of the sort of darkest moments in the in the north's recent history. You know, indeed, as I think various centre for cities um, publications have made clear. Yes,
0: yes, I, and because I think one of the things, like, I mean, firstly, just in the way you've described that, there are some fantastic photographs of. Not just of the or those early days that you were just where you lived and where you grew up, but actually fantastic photographs throughout the book, which enrich, I think, the 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 story that you're trying to tell. The other thing I got really, uh, which I found really interesting in the book, partly because of the way that you've just described your relationship to the you know to the north and to the northeast, particularly is both both participant and also observer, and you know participant and observer. Different periods of the so I mean, how, was that a deliberate thing, or was that it did that? You know, was that a deliberate sort of choice in the way that you tried to, you know, put pen on, uh, put pen to paper?
1: Yeah, I mean, it, I guess there were various reasons for that. One was that you know the the nature of the the kind of book that it was. It wasn't. I didn't have very long to write it. To to, to be quite frank, it was you know a kind of trade book. Um, you know, the kind of book that your publisher kind of asks you to write in about a year so that it's kind of addressing certain kind of topical questions such as, you know, the red wall and, and the fallout from Brexit and so on. Um, so of necessity, you know, it's, it's not a kind of, not, not one of those works that you kind of spend 10 years researching, packing lots of, um, uh, you know, hard sociological data in, um, you know, as, as, as you said, it's, it integrates that kind of memoir element. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess me as a participant, but also, you know, I think th- there is a bit of distance. There's a hopefully some objectivity. You know, I think you need to be clear that um, you know, there are multiple Norths, multiple experiences of the North. Um, and I think you need to make clear your own bias in a sense, and make clear that I'm, you know, I'm coming at this issue, this question of the North and its identity and history from a particular angle. Um and you know, I guess as a participant with a kind of human story, but also mm. you know that therefore uh, my my perspective is kind of um, has a bit of distance and and is going to be quite different from other people's experiences,
0: yeah, well, even more so now, given the, the short time that you had to to write it, um uh, you know even bigger congratulations on on the on the the variety and uh, uh, extent of the the examples and the illustrations and the you know the 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 flavor and richness that you add to you know to the themes that obviously permeate um through the uh through the book um you you did say i mean in some respects this could be the like the last question but let's let's sort of you know almost get it to the the title of the book is a positive one, right? I mean, in the sense, the North will rise again, and there's there's no question mark at the end of it, which is often, you know, the the writer's sort of get out clause, which they kind of say, yes, it will, but I'm I'm being sufficiently, you know, ambiguous and give myself a bit of wiggle room. But it's a positive, um, it's a positive statement, and you go search in search of you know, evidence to support your positive statement. Just say a little bit about that, because you, you obviously there are, as you say, there are there are gloomy periods that you're reflecting on. There are missed opportunities that you're reflecting on in in the book as well. So give us a sense as how that the hope and the the gloom interplay, and you, you land on the hope side, which is admirable. Admirable. Oh, I'm Welsh, yeah. so we're not we're disposed disposed to being you know to be naturally optimistic and and having hope. But there we go. You know, maybe interesting yeah. what you can say.
1: That's yeah, that's very astute. I mean, I think it, it possibly should have had a question mark the title, but uh it would have had I a bit.
0: Less... I'm saying I'm glad you didn't. So I'm I'm very glad that you re- if that was the editorial sort of suggestion, I'm very glad that you didn't go down that route.
1: No, I mean I think a lot of it is about hoping in in spite of the reality, unfortunately. <laughs> um and I mean I th- I think part of the intention of the book was to make people a bit bit angry and a bit feel a bit shortchanged by the various attempts to sort of revive and regenerate the North, which have been very half-hearted at best, I think, uh, over the last sort of 50, 60 years. Um, And I think, you know, the the purpose of the book is that in kind of looking back at these various sort of failed attempts at regeneration and various failed attempts at what is now sort of fashionably called levelling up, Mm -hmm. Um, people might, you know, learn to fail better as, as, as Samuel Beckett says, or, 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 you know, to, to derive some kind of sense of, you know, anger, but also determination to go beyond what's been attempted over the last 50 or 60 years. I mean, I think, you know, I would also say it's, it's very difficult unless you're writing a kind of journalistic text where you kind of go out and, um, Interview people in you know startups in you know various cities, for example. Almost it would almost be a kind of business text, or, yeah. or it would be a very different kind of kind of journalistic text, which isn't the sort of writing that I'm uh, qualified to do, frankly. Uh, and also, you know, partly there's a kind of lockdown context. I, had, I was sort of writing a bit at the end of uh, the last lockdown when it was very difficult yes. to get out and about. Uh, but even, even if I hadn't been, I think, you know, my approach to these things is that, you know, in order to get to the future, you have to sort of venture back into the past. Um, and you have to kind of try to, um, you know, as I say, you know, look back at history, look at how things have gone wrong in the past in order to try to, you know, correct them going into the future.
0: Yeah. And and in the book, I mean, as you've said, you you touch widely on politics, past and present you know, economy and economic questions, past, present, society questions. But you're also using art, literature, poetry, you know, culture generally defined or generally kind of thought of as things to get in under the skin of some of these things and to reveal something more about. I just say a little bit about what that, I mean, partly, I guess it comes from your particular background, but also, you know, what did that reveal, you know, to you in the way that you, we should think about what's going on you know, in the north and and what the opportunities and what the, the future is.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. As you say, it's, it's partly that that's my background. You know, having said that I just had a year to write write the book, obviously I was drawing on um, many years of research into, into kind of northern culture. Uh, you know, I wrote a PhD on um, modernist poetry, particularly a kind of northern poet called Basil Bunting. Uh, you know, I've, I've sort of written about and been interested in various... Forms of art and, and music and architecture. Um, so yeah, so it's it's partly that's my kind of area of expertise. You know, I also think um it's, you know, when you're dealing with questions of identity and place, there's a sense in which you have to look to art and culture first. You, you, you know, you're not going to get a kind of definitive or very helpful answer, I think, if you um, you know, provide kind of survey data on, you know, how people you know, I often think, you know, a lot of these questions about national identity, when they're put to surveys, people don't quite understand the question, you know, you know, are you English or British? Well, that's, you know, it's such a complex question yeah, quite. that the, the kind of um, the outcome is, you know, is 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 going to be ambiguous at best. I think, you know, you have to embrace, embrace the ambiguity that you get with works of art uh, and, you know, music and poetry. Which are not going to give you a kind of definitive, you know, hard sociological answer about the future of the North, but they, you know, I think will give you a kind of deeper sense of, of, you know, the the past of a people and a place.
0: Yeah. No, I agree. I completely agree with that, and in part, that's a, you know, that that's an inevitable ambiguity and and nuance that um, you have to both reflect. But as you well, you know, as you know, and you touch on in the book. It also presents then some challenges when you're trying to coalesce, you know, quite diverse perspectives and identities around a common goal or common objective. Which we'll we'll come back um, we'll come back to that uh, definitely. Um, what I really enjoy I mean lo- enjoyed a lot in the book. Just uh, I two individuals and just tell the story of the two individuals and how that connects to your broader thing. So, Key Dan Smith, you know, you talk a lot about you know him and what he represented particularly in that sort of Civil War period 19 you know late 50s into the 60s and then you finish the book uh, with quite a homage i think in some respects which i you know great great admiration for which is to kevin keegan so there aren't many books i've read in fact more books that have both you know that have a two individuals quite starkly different but they form a similar role in some respects to some of the bigger themes that you pick up in other book so just just tell yeah. us. I mean, firstly, tell us who T. Dan Smith is for those that are less familiar. Um, hopefully, more people may know who Kevin Keegan is, but you might need to say who he is in the, in the northeast context. And then just tell us what those two individuals. How do they become emblematic, uh, symbolic for you know for the for the rise and the fall and the and the rebirth of the of the um, of the north and the northeast particularly?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that draws those those two figures together is a sense of you know, kind of failed idealism. They're both sort of failed idealists in in very different fields. Um, T. Dan Smith was uh, a leading figure in the post-war Newcastle Council, became council leader in the early 60s. Um, I mean, he's best known for his kind of fall from grace in the 70s. He was imprisoned on corruption charges, which were almost certainly true. Nonetheless, I think there's a sense in which he's become uh, his kind of legacy has been um, treated as a kind of way of burying a certain spirit of kind of assertive regionalism that took root in the 50s, uh, 60s, perhaps into the 70s. There's a sense that, you know, his demonization, I think, went beyond, you know, the the, the kind of fact of his... Um, what, you know what, he did wrong, and he's become a kind of symbol of why we can never go back to this kind of situation that we had in the 50s and 60s of very assertive regional figures. Perhaps we are getting back to it with um, the metro I, I don't know, what perhaps we are in some cities and not others. Um, yeah. But T. Dan Smith, yeah, I mean, he was, was a, a failed idealist, he had very energetic ideals about transforming the Northeast. Into a kind of city region with Newcastle at the centre, um with lots of new buildings, the the record of the the kind of architecture is is contested, but I think on the whole, I would say it's a uh, a good one. It, you know he provided a kind of modern infrastructure for Newcastle, lots of social housing, um a new civic centre, or at least uh, kind of bankrolled a new civic centre so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think, and I think at the very least you have to compare T-Dan's, T-Dan Smith's records with what's happened in the years since, which is that not very much infrastructure has, has been uh, built in in, in the Northeastern Newcastle. You, you had a kind of attempt to do something, particularly with culture in, in the new labor years. And actually prior to that, in the kind of Thatcher and Major years, uh, but certainly compared with the kind of post-2010 record of governments, you know, since austerity, um, you know, very little has been built. In fact, you know, we have kind of, if you look around the city of Newcastle, there are lots of kind of, you know, weeds growing out of the buildings because the council <laughs> doesn't have enough money to, um, to you know, maintain buildings on a very basic level. Um, so that's T. Dan Smith. I mean, Kevin Keegan, yeah, a slightly more... Uh, uh a bleak example um but i guess you know embodying this sense of a kind of um hope in spite of the odds Uh, kevin keegan was as many people know a newcastle manager in the newcastle united manager in the mid 90s early to mid 90s and kind of took the team from the verge of bankruptcy to the top of the premier league and very nearly in this kind of famous season 1995 to 96, very nearly won the title and Newcastle were top of the league for most of the season and then threw it away and and, and Man United won in the end. Um, but I think there was something in Keegan's character that also embodied this peculiar... It, I don't think it's peculiar just to, just to a Northern identity, but it's perhaps peculiar to people in parts of Britain or the British Isles outside of the South East, whereby there's a sense that you can only get so far um, and there are various kind of limitations and kind of naysayers that will kind of um, get in your way. And in order to kind of rise above that, you have to have this kind of very strong sense of kind of populist idealism. Um, So I think both, both Keegan and T Dan Smith embodied that in their very different ways.
0: Yeah, no, quite. I think exactly. I, 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 I was, uh, it was really interesting reading. You know, hedan uh, Dan Smith appears earlier on in the book. Keegan essentially appears right towards the end. He's in the epilogue, and uh, but when you read the way that you've written about them and talked about them, you can see the commonality of, um, you know, those, those as as individuals, but what they represented, and ultimately, as you say, um, you know, maybe some you know, some commonalities in, in maybe why they didn't quite. Um, they didn't quite succeed in in ultimately in the goals that they they set themselves. I thought it was a really kind of fascinating uh, fascinating sort of area to uh, and the way that you you um you did it. I thought it was really good. Um, let's turn a little bit to so I want to get to um kind of major sort of missed opportunity that's highlighted in the book, which is the sort of regional assemblies movement, which comes on. You know, in the early part of New Labour, so late 90s into the early 2000s, and you know, get you to say a little bit about why you felt that was such a missed opportunity. Um, but put that in the context of you know, you also talk about you know the deindustrialisation process, the economic deindustrialisation process of the Northeast, particularly rapid decline of heavy industry, uh, mining, etc. Um, but but connect that to how you then think. And how you put it into the book that affects the cultural, the sort of societal, impl- what what the societal and cultural implications? How does how does society and culture respond to that quite dramatic economic change? And then we'll come to the sort of regional assemblies missed opportunity and whether there's any sort of remnants of the missed opportunity in the in the previous. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think probably the the judgment on the industrialization and its wake is that. The north, uh, you know, certainly the northeast where I live has never quite recovered from it. You know, there's never been a successful or substantial replacement for, you know, mining, uh, you know, mills, factories, shipbuilding, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Obviously, deindustrialization is ongoing throughout the 20th century. It, you know, really begins around the time of World War I and has, mm. you know, certain reversals, but it's, you know, really a kind of long process throughout the 20th century in which the North goes from having been, you know, in a sense, the centre of the world in the 19th century, the centre of the, I guess, kind of globalisation that you had in the, in the long 19th century. Uh, the North goes from that uh, economic pinnacle, I guess, to a position of, extreme marginalization in in some senses such that you know it, you know lots of the kind of poorest regions poorest areas in in the country and uh, indeed in europe are, are now in the north of england mm. and you know that you'll know the statistics but um you know there are various st- statistics underlining the fact that we're one of the most regionally imbalanced economies in in, in europe and i think uh perhaps further afield um So really, you know, that's the context of the book. We're we're still waiting for some kind of redress for deindustrialization and some kind of reversal. I think, you know, politically, for me, that implies the the kind of conclusion that we can derive, I think, from the 1980s in particular, is that, um, you know, you have in the 1980s the kind of, you know, end game, the kind of death spiral of the industrialization under Margaret Thatcher's government. And you have quite obviously a a real polarization of the electoral geography of the country, such that the Tories, you know, become quite marginalized in Scotland, Wales and the North, but just, you know, absolutely dominate in the South of England. And I think that's part of, a big part of why certain policies were pursued by the Thatcher government and Mm -hmm you know, the North was sort of cut loose in a sense. Um, So ultimately that implies as various figures, for example, in um, the new Labour ascendancy in the 90s realised that implies some kind of um, uh, reform of our kind of constitutional makeup, such that you have, for example, um, parliaments or assemblies uh, in Scotland and Wales. And obviously there's an attempt to do that in the regions, in the English regions, it's uh, abandoned after the Northeast referendum. Uh, the referendum for a Northeast Assembly is convincingly defeated in two thousand and four. Um, but I, you know, I think there are various ways of looking at it. I think it's important not to think that just because you know there was a referendum and it went badly at a particular moment in his in history that the issue should just be put to bed forever. Mm. Um, As we've seen in multiple other contexts, constitutional referendums are, you know, held over and over again, sometimes, you know, you kind of take the temperature of a generation, as it were, um, every generation. So perhaps due another look at this constitutional question, you know, I'm not, I th- you know, I think there are quest- there are There is a debate to be had about whether referendums are the best way to handle these issues. Coming back to what we were saying earlier about do people really meaningfully understand the question that you know they're given? Do they yeah. have enough information yeah. to say whether you know what a northeast assembly would look like? It seems that a better way to do it would be to integrate it into a manifesto of a party that's. Then democratically elected, Um, uh, so you have it, you know, done by representational democracy rather than Mm -hmm. direct democracy, which, you know, as we can see from various other referendums, isn't always there. Isn't always a clear outcome that reflects what people think. It can it can be quite chaotic.
0: Yeah, yeah. And in the in the book, Alex, I mean, is it fair to say, you know, you 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 sort of think that. Um, well, you not know, least you just said it, but you know, the idea of the regional assembly, however mm-hmm. defined, but broadly, right, is a good idea, but you're critical of the way that it was communicated and advocated for, not just that you know it was chosen to go to be attempted through a referendum process, which you just alluded to, which is not always the best way to do these complicated things. But also, even given that, is it fair to say you, know, you were pretty critical of that the labour party of the day with the exception of one or two prescott being one mainly others were ambivalent or agnostic about the idea of having an assembly or the north East assembly and then i guess if that had been successful other assemblies you thought that they just didn't push hard enough on that is that and if that is the case why do you think that is
1: yeah i mean that's that's certainly one factor in the in the the sort of emphatic no result in in 2004 uh, you know Tony Blair said he thought it was stupid um, as you say John Prescott you know did quite a good job of kind of putting a sort of valiant effort of trying to advocate for this idea yeah I mean I think part, partly there's a narrative about the narrative arc of new labour and government and in a sense it, you know the the sort of that, that, that sort of narrative arc was a sort of initial period of, you know, it was never a very left, left-wing government, but certainly in the first sort of year or two, um, you, know, after, you know, 97, 98, 99, perhaps up to the millennium, there were certain kind of long held back reformist policies which were implemented by the new Labour government. You know, as we said, particularly the, the kind of, you know, devolution in, in Scotland mm. and Wales, you know, the Good Friday Agreement in, in Northern Ireland, the minimum wage. Uh, what happens after 2000s, you know, uh, you, you could put it as late as 2001 when second New Labour term begins, is that, you know, by that point, New Labour has, has already settled down into a very, very kind of cautious, conservative uh, kind of default mode. Obviously, this is the time of you know Iraq, this 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 very kind of needlessly, needless kind of right wing foreign policy venture, um, but also the period of you know um, foundation hospitals and um, you know introducing various forms of privatization into higher education in the form of uh, ultimately tuition uh, uh, raising tuition fees and so on and so forth. So I think. You know that was the that was the moment that New Labour was in in two thousand and four. It, it really, um, you know, the the energy that it had mustered in the very late nineties had, had very much dissipated. Um. So yeah, so I think um, that was at least partly to blame. I think you know I think it, 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 you know from the kind of side of the electorate, the electorate was also a bit peeved with the Labour government by that point, and was, in a sense, I think a lot of people were sort of trying to teach, teach the Labour government and teach Tony Blair a lesson by voting no. Um, that doesn't explain the whole thing, but I think those were some of the, that was the kind of environment, that was the kind of electoral moment, yeah. as it were.
0: Yeah, and they sort of let, you know, you're reading it, they sort of let that, happen, really, without, without countering it, not just in the specific, but in the general wraparound of you know, what was going on and what some of the ambitions and intentions were?
1: Yeah, I mean, I just I don't think they really cared much about reforms by that point of government. They were kind of clinging on to power. You know, if you look at the 2005 ele- you know, the election, just a year after that referendum, Labour gets a very, very low vote share and very very low popular vote um i think it's you know statistically one of the lowest ever you know in which a a party still retained power Mm -hmm. um so i think yeah obviously that's from the side of the electorate but also yeah from internally within labor i think they weren't really interested in radical reforms by that point in their uh in their kind of narrative of government
0: yeah. No, yeah. It's an it's an it's always an interesting one around, you know, what what might have um what might have happened if you know if the regional assembly because I suppose, you know, fast forward, obviously you're right in this 22, 23, you know, you you get a reference into leveling up which had appeared in twenty nineteen. You start the book with giving an illustration through talking about uh the Metro Mayor of Greater Manchester and Andy Burnham and his position in relation to COVID and you know and what was going on at the time in terms of tiers and restrictions. Um, is it fair to say? I think you're still you're still in favor of, or you are in favor of, sort of pan northern or you know big big northern things, which uh, I I you know I'm less in favor of those. I think, uh, but also I'd be so partly that, but also I'm interested in your view then around, you know, from the. I guess from the, you know, the mid well 2010s coalition government, we start to see the emergence of combined authorities at different in different ways, Greater Manchester and then Liverpool and so on and so on. Um, I wonder what you think about that. Is that is that a halfway house to a to your ideal, or is it is it a you know is it a missed turn? I mean, how would you how would you sort of phrase that? How would you think about that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think I guess the conclusion of the book is that you have to have a kind of radical constitutional solution or process of reform, really, to balance out, you know, this overwhelming narrative of of kind of regional inequality.
0: Um, and that's your enduring critique, right? I mean, all the stuff that you note has happened in Newcastle or Sunderland or Manchester or wherever, what your big critique is, it's probably not big enough, which, you know, is fair enough, but also... It's not institutionally based. It's not constitutionally based. It's not yes. power based, really. It's project money based, which is obviously better than note, but um, but it's not. It's not based on a reform of the way that institutions are established and or and or run. Is that is that fair?
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think
0: you know, I I completely
1: understand people who are trying to be pragmatic and trying to work with what exists. That is often what people are doing by virtue of what they do um i mean my my i in a sense have uh you know the 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 freedom not to have to do that uh, (laughs) because because i'm dealing with bigger questions of you know the nation state throughout history and identity throughout history and how that's shaped by culture and um and art um so you know i think that partly accounts for my perspective which is 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 quite radical which is that you know historically the north has been so disadvantaged and disadvantaged for so long that it, i'm skeptical that any of the kind of you know pragmatic smaller scale solutions are going to do any more than kind of scratch at the surface so i you know it would seem to me that, yeah, you have to have a kind of big constitutional change which comes along with things like um you know getting rid of the monarchy, you know our kind of constitution is really well it's it's not a written constitution it's it really has this kind of medieval it's a kind of um you know relic of of the Middle ages. It doesn't seem to me you know the fact that it's radical to suggest that you have to radically overhaul that just shows what how you know how messed up this country is. It, yeah.
0: It seems you have to be ridiculous. radical in order to advocate for radical change. Yeah. Or, yeah. or you're deemed to be radical if you advocate for radical, uh radical change. Yeah,
1: it does it it just seems like quite a reasonable um you know starting point. Um essentially that you know you, you have to kind of dig things up at the roots. You, you know, um having said that, I think the Metro sometimes have done good things, you know, as lots of the regeneration projects, you know, even some of the regeneration projects of the sort of Thatcher and Meiji years, you know, had good effects and good outcomes. I mean, I think, um, you know, the the, the one period that I think, you know, almost didn't have anything good about it was the kind of coalition government of the 2010s. Economically, although, you know, the metromeralties arose from that moment. I mean, I think the metromeralties, some, some of them work and some of them don't. And I think, you know, I'm generally with some caveats, a, a big fan of Andy Burnham and, and what he's managed to achieve in Manchester, particularly with transport. You know, I think that was a very moving moment. This year when the, you know the 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 kind of bus service was was open and you saw those kind of photos on social media um, you know, I think you should not underestimate what you know what a big achievement that was um you know I think then when you look at all of the other metro you know the, the the record is a bit more ambiguous um you know partly in in the northeast for example, because we had this weird north of Tyne
0: Entity. Yeah, half half a sort of yeah. half a metro region, right? I mean yeah, so, for the reasons that you know, which is about political shenanigans and yeah, all the rest of it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: yeah. Sort of obscure local political wrangling, basically. Uh, you know, we didn't have a, a metro mayoralty for the whole region, which means transport, for example, was not it's not wasn't possible to do anything with that, but we are expanding that imminently to a, to the whole region so hopefully some good things will happen there um but yeah i mean i again i you know i i really applaud these developments you know as i say I, you know i i thought the the opening of the public bus service in, in manchester earlier really this year was a fantastic moment and I, you know i was very kind of personally sort of moved by that i would also be skeptical that you're going to get anything other than kind of small-scale victories through that system, um, which would, you know, points to the conclusion that you, you do have to, you know, look at the kind of roots of the thing and how the country is set up in terms of House of Lords and et cetera, et cetera, and its unwritten constitution and the monarchy and, and you know, so on and so forth. But, you know, I was quite encouraged by the... Gordon Brown reports published about this time last year um, with its recommendations for some quite radical um, constitutional reforms. As I understand it, you know, the, that, that's that that been, if if not watered down in current kind of Labour policy, then, you know, certainly they're not going to kind of implement the, the good bits of that, unfortunately. Yeah. Its, um, it's
0: influence is unclear, it would be the sort of, you know, the uh the the legal you know the legalese language right you know if we are to, we are considering deeply all of the recommendations and we'll and we'll respond in due course. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a bit of fudge there, isn't there? Um, to put it mildly. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, again, it comes. It just seems to me that it's it's quite a rational approach to take. That you know, we 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 have a very chaotic kind of antique um constitution and uh cultural political architecture in this country, you probably have to renovate it quite assertively and energetically um in order to see results. It's you know yeah. you're not gonna kind of get really visible results if you just kind of tinker around the edges of this quite archaic system.
0: Yeah, no I agree with that. I agree with that. And and you and you say in the Book you're making and the argument at the at that sort of macro scale, uh, the the detail rightly is for others and you know and for further, you know for ne- for the for the next book as it were to figure out you know, you know yeah. but you, you know what I mean It's the sort of macro argument which um uh, which is there. Let's come back maybe um, kind of move towards close, but think about um, come back to your just reflections on the identity aspects of it and how do you, you know, how even within the Northeast, there's lots of different you know, identities. You've got, you know, on the one hand, very simply, you've got Geordies, you've got Macams you've got, you know, uh, you've got Wearsiders and, 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 you know, on all sort of different aspects of it. Um, how do you think about that? And I suppose, how does that connect to ideas of the, you know, of the North? I mean, is that a good thing? Is that a hindrance? Is there too much variation and and identity which is often very locally oriented very locally based deeply held does that prevent a sort of concept of the the north becoming more than an idea more than a sort of cultural concept into a you know into a political movement i suppose i guess i don't know what what's your thought on that alex
1: yeah absolutely i mean i think i think that is a big issue um I mean, I think, you know, the the sort of standard response when you even start to talk about identity and make any kind of assertion about the identity of a place is that, oh, well, you know, people in the west end of Newcastle are totally different to the east end of Newcastle. And, you know, people in different parts of the, you know, people in the northwest are nothing like people in the northeast. You know, I, I I think there's a place for that, and that's absolutely true. But I think that can very quickly deteriorate into a kind of absurdist, um, you know, hair-splitting, um, um, you know, line of inquiry, whereby you know you ultimately, you know, people at the end of your street are totally different from you know the people at the other end of the street. I think counter to that, that, that there is political usefulness at least, and I think perhaps cultural empowerment as well from making a case for unity and for a kind of unified identity. um, I think it seems reasonable to me to make that case for, for the North of England. Um, You know, I think I'm not the first to do so. Many people have done so in the past. I think a sense of the North and northerness is quite a strong one in English and and or British culture. Um, You know, I think at the very least, you know, aside from things like the Industrial Revolution and its after effects, you know, the origins of the Labour Party, the origins of football as a sport, you know, certain kind of cultural markers um, that define the North, I think, you know, politically, you know, combining the kind of political and cultural realms, there's a sense in which, uh, you know, the North, by the mere fact of its distance from London and its kind of marginalisation by the Westminster establishment, you know, that in itself is, is something which unifies the North. It's, you know, a similar narrative in uh, Scotland and Wales. Obviously, it has different nuances in, in Ireland. You could make the same case for the Southwest, I think, in, in a different context. Mm. But I think that is kind of an inalienable fact of these islands and how they're kind of arranged and, and politically and economically and socially organised, that we have this massively developed massively powerful southeast corner and every, everywhere else kind of suffers from that um, such that you need you know as I've said kind of radical constitutional settlements and solutions to balance that out and you know coming along with that perhaps you know preceding that you need a sense that you know there's a kind of unified northern identity which is uh, you know a kind of margin of of the country in a sense um and a sense that you know things have to change it and that that's unfair and that you know um you know that i guess is part of the book's argument for a belief in the future and in things being better in the future um you know being an essential part of northern identity that's where that argument comes from because i think people in the north aren't satisfied with the way things are they're often kind of dreaming about a better future and that it has certain effects on northern culture. So I think you know that's in a sense the the kind of central argument of the book it's about this yearning for a better yeah tree, better future, better culture that more than anything else, perhaps that is what defines living in somewhere like the north, you know, similar I think in you know, other when we say peripheral parts of of these islands um they shouldn't be peripheral but but they are because of the um the kind of towering dominance of of London and the southeast
0: yeah no that's a, a great point and a, a great sort of, view of perspective and a great way to um finish there's there's so much more in the in the uh, I could talk to you for endlessly about about almost each page and get you to expand on it so I'll, I'll wait for I'll wait for book two. Um, if, if there is a book tour, well, whatever there, there is, Alex, but um, for now, um, thank you very much for being part of City Talk. Thanks, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you like what you heard. You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner. Used with permission and all rights are reserved.